Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. The Buddha said, you will not be punished for your anger, you will be punished by your anger. And he certainly had a point. Graham, who was a client of mine, was an eminent mathematics professor, and he'd been told that he had anger management issues. But most people just think, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank, he said. So there was a challenge in his eyes, as he said, and anyway, what good is just being told that? You know, why is it going to help me just to be told I've got anger management problems? I need actual help with controlling it. Graham was almost a caricature of an angry man. He had tense neck, uh, tense jaw, arched eyebrows. He looked angry for much of the time. And I suddenly saw how much there is to pity in the chronically angry person, trapped as they are in an invisible prison. And now, as Graham became enraged about his rage, I began to see just how hard it was for him in his life, as well as for those people who had to tread on eggshells around him who populated his life. A university professor with a stratospheric IQ this piercingly bright man had done some amazingly dumb things while angry. I'm now off work with stress, he told me. And he was stressed. He was incredibly uh, plagued by his own emotionality. So why are you off work with stress, I asked him. And he said, well, I threw a chair through a window at school where he worked because a student was driving me nuts. He just kept arguing over everything I was saying. I was such an idiot. And there was a hint of uh, tears in his eyes as he said this. So anger had stolen a lot from Graham. Many friendships, two wives consecutively, his job and even his health. He'd been having heart problems. And I was struck by the thought that his was a classic case. You know, Graham was suffering many of the common side effects of chronic and continual anger. And I'm talking about destructive anger here. Okay. Yes, I know that sometimes anger can be a magnificent tool with which to fuel courageous changes, challenge injustice, and sweep inertia aside. You don't tend to be lazy and inactive when you're feeling enraged. It's a very motivating force, but not for the chronically angry who are weighed down and sometimes destroyed by this most powerful of natural survival tools. More is understood about the effects of the emotion of anger than ever before. And therapists uh, need to be on top of all there is to know about this emotion because it's such a widespread uh, emotion for people. So how anger affects the brain? Angry equals stupid. In a sense, we're all children of the let it all hang out generation where emotional outbursts are seen as natural and cathartic, almost our right. And at first, questioning or criticizing this paradigm of the passions can seem uncomfortable, even absurd. But when we do delve into the way we experience them, these emotions, we find that unregulated emotions are the root of so much 
misery. Anger can be addictive. Unlike anxiety, shame or depression, anger drives us towards the object of our arousal. So anxiety will drive you away from what it is that's caused the emotion. Anger drives you towards it. So it's called a positive emotion. So curiously, during anger, the left hemisphere of the brain is strongly activated, meaning that a kind of simplistic logic is used. But the context processing right hemisphere is all but dumped in the moment. So anger is a left hemispheric dominant sort of emotion. It seems logical to lash out in the moment if any thought is involved at all. But the wider context, this is your best friend's wedding, may not be appreciated in the moment. Like any addiction, chronic anger seems to promise real rewards, but ultimately takes more than it gives. Some people get a buzz from the excitement that becoming angry provides in an otherwise dull day. Testosterone increases, as does energizing adrenaline. And some people get hooked on the intensity, even though for many it feels deeply unpleasant, even scary to feel angry. But some people will get hooked on the buzz of it. In chronic anger, we may, may find a fast-tracked means of receiving attention from other people, a kind of status as people constantly monitor us to see how we'll take things. So we get preferential special treatment. Is he or she going to be okay with this? And delightfully, in moments of rage, we lose our self-consciousness. So go ahead, just try being shy whilst swept along in the heady paroxysms of outrage. The two can't coexist. Self-doubt goes out the window when we're in an absolute rage. And it's nice to get rid of self-doubt sometimes. There's a certain joy in self-righteous certainty when so much of life seems ambiguous. But of course, there's a price to pay. Extreme anger makes us stupid. It makes us do stuff we may come to bitterly regret. What seems like a good idea when we're angry can seem really stupid when we calm down and have a wider context. The angrier we become, the more our ability to process subtlety and nuance suffers. When strong negative emotions hijack the thinking brain, IQ drops like a stone. Even the brightest mathematics professor can, when enraged, appear scarcely more coherent than an incensed gorilla. Reality comes to be seen in simplistic, good or bad, all or nothing perspectives, as sensational as tabloid news headlines. So other people come to be seen as stupid or evil for having differing opinions. All kinds of neutral events are seen paranoically as intentional threats. So many people have um, lost their lives to anger but not just by being the victims of someone else's anger in the moment. Anger itself kills, but not just the other guy. Okay, becoming angry is a threat to the person experiencing the anger. Psychotherapists used to think that it was healthy to express anger, to let it all out. And you know, emotions were, were supposed to work in the same way as hydraulic technology. You know, so people were like, uh, pressure cookers that needed to let off steam. These uh, 
technology metaphors are still in use, but there's a problem with this metaphor, with this model. And the trouble is, Graham was great at venting, great at letting it all hang out. He was very good at venting his anger, at expressing the pent-up anger. But anger was still damaging his life and affecting his heart health. So don't get me wrong, some venting can be healthy, especially when it leads to increased assertiveness. You know, anger can give us the self-confidence and lack of self-doubt uh, to enable us to be assertive. But modern research has found that extreme anger is just as damaging to the heart, and check out reference one to the written version of this, and to the immune function as uh, if it's released, as if it's kept inside. Okay, so releasing anger isn't any better for the heart. It's just as damaging to the heart as keeping it bottled up. And, and people need to know this. Contrary to popular psychotherapeutic thought from the 1970s, constantly letting anger out doesn't get rid of anger. And in fact, being angrier may simply make us better at getting angry. Okay, the more you do something, the more likely you are to do it. This is called Hebbian le uh, learning in neuroscience. Hebbian learning. So you get better at doing what you experience more of. So venting anger isn't automatically superior to keeping it in. And as far as your health is concerned, um, it doesn't make any difference. Bottling it up, expressing it, still bad for the heart, okay, if it's extreme. So the surprising truth is that getting very angry very often is a strong predictor of early death through heart disease. And in fact, even recalling times you felt very angry can be really bad for the heart. So getting people in touch with their emotions isn't always very good for them. And of course, millions have been traumatized or even killed because other people chose to express rather than suppress their anger. So we practitioners should not be encouraging our clients to get angry all the time in therapy. Okay, with the assumption that that's uh, somehow automatically healthier. Teaching people to control themselves can save their own lives as well as the lives of the targets of their rage. So good anger management isn't about learning to express your anger all the time. Uh, expressing something about which you're unhappy is best done assertively and calmly rather than angrily. Okay. Nor is it about bottling it all up, which still compromises blood pressure and heart function. It's about becoming less angry less often. Okay, so if you don't get so angry, then there's nothing to bottle up. Okay, and when you do express things that you want to be different, you have a little bit of anger perhaps, but mainly you have clarity and a good level of calm. Certainly we can look at how and perhaps why the anger germinated was this person brought up in an environment that conditioned them to feel that everything was a fight? Okay. Were they spoiled by over-indulgent parents who made them feel like they were the center of everything and that their needs must take precedence over everyone else's needs? Okay, so then you have a lot to defend in life because it's all about you. Do they have a brain injury that causes uncontrolled bouts of rage? Exploring emotional etiology may be of use, particularly if we can reframe their experience of the past. But ultimately, we want our angry clients to live better in the now and in the future. Okay. So unless we 
need to de-traumatize past events in order to create this change, we shouldn't just focus on emotional archaeology. So how can we help our clients take back the reins of their own minds, so to speak? How can we get them better controlling their own emotionality? So tip one, discover what pushes your client's buttons. So Graham, this client that I was talking about, became enraged when he was exhausted and overworked. He tended to be a bit of a workaholic and this would lead to uh, susceptibility to becoming very angry. In the lead up to the chair throwing incident, he had not been sleeping and also he'd been drinking too much alcohol. And he also told me whenever he felt he was not being listened to, he would sense the red mist descending. So there were other uh, triggers for Graham as well. So becoming angry can work just like a hypnotic trigger, becoming automatic before we, in our cognitive mind, even know what's happening. This is, is like um, a post-hypnotic trigger working. So anger is also very conditioning in itself. Uh, what I mean by this is that, for example, we've been uh, uh, or if you've been angry with a certain person a few times, you can become conditioned to feel angry towards them automatically. Just hearing their name may even produce a shot of irritation. So it's like a button being pushed. You hear so-and-so's name mentioned and you oh, you, you just get that sort of angry uh, response, which is automatic. Okay, that's a conditioning. Get to know your client's triggers and get them to know them as well so that they can start to see them operate. Uh, and so that you can rehearse switching off those triggers whenever they get pushed in everyday life. Two, insert some distance between clients and the source of frustration. When we're hijacked by emotion, thinking is substituted for feeling. And in fact, sometimes there's no real thinking going on at all. In the British House of Commons, where politicians like to bicker or debate, as they might call it, the distance between the government ministers and those of the opposition is traditionally two swords and one inch distance. So why is that? Because in days of yore, when swords were worn in Parliament, it was thought that this extra distance would help people engage the thinking brain before acting on emotion. It gave them enough space to actually maybe put their sword back away again because they'd actually had enough time to engage the, th the thinking brain. They would have time to question whether running the other fellow through really was such a great idea, given that there was hanging and all back in the day. So we can teach our clients to give themselves space and time during potentially enraging situations to get back in touch with their thinking brain. So I taught Graham how to breathe so that he could calm down fast. Count to ten and tell himself, I'm becoming calmer, between one count and the next. He was also to remind himself that even, especially if the other person was wrong or out of order, he didn't need to waste energy and damage his heart further on that person. Okay, he didn't need to damage himself because someone else was wrong damage his life. He later reported that just having this strategy was really useful in depotentiating anger. But we can help our clients more powerfully than this. So 
Tip number three, use rehearsal to help your client see wider. So anger narrows focus, a destructive emotional trance state. So when I'm enraged, I see reality only as an all or nothing uh, perception of reality and miss the subtle shades of grey of a situation. The more black and white, uh, all or nothing our view becomes, the angrier we become. But in a vicious cycle, anger makes our thinking more black and white, all or nothing. Think of the uh, language that angry people use, other than the cursing. It tends to be all or nothing. I'm completely right, you are completely wrong. So there's no shades of grey. Anger makes us see ill intent in others, when in fact they may have simply uh, made an honest mistake. So you did that on purpose. Okay, uh, but we can help our clients remove themselves emotionally from the situation, letting them see wider and further. You know, if you think wisdom really is seeing bigger contexts, okay, it's the opposite to the narrow emotionality of perception, which is all or nothing. So there's a beautiful hypnotic exercise I did with Graham. And like most angry people, Graham was very good at being hypnotized because, you know, he was so good at narrowing his focus because anger is a state of symptomatic hypnotic trance, really. So I asked him to think about the last time he got really angry. And right on cue, he started getting angry just recalling the time. Okay, and I only did this for a few seconds because we don't want to damage the poor guy even further because we know it's not good for the heart to do that. So I asked him just to refocus externally and take some breaths. So just a couple of seconds of recalling an angry time, getting a little bit of that, um, and then opening his eyes and focusing outward and breathing deeply. Then I asked him to close his eyes again, but this time to watch that time from the outside as if it, he were a third person observer, like watching a, uh, a film on TV. This time he felt calm and slightly embarrassed to notice things about the interaction that he'd never seen before, such as how he was closing in on the other person's personal uh, space and not listening and jutting his finger out like, like, a, like a stab like this. I then got him to open his eyes again and close them again and observe the interaction with a resolution or the resolution it could have had if he'd remained calm. So this amazed him. So we're kind of rewriting history. He knows that didn't happen, but he's seeing himself as though he'd remained calm in that situation. We then had him rehearse watching over and over again potential instances from the future in which before undergoing any treatment with me, he typically would have become angry, but this time with him remaining calm and in control. So we're watching him respond to likely triggers in the future, but in a different way. So I'm convinced this really helped Graham because we're undoing the actual conditioning. So if you don't have hypnotic skills or do inner work with your clients, you could simply ask them to ask themselves during those times, what is another way of looking at this? Okay, so we're getting him into his observing self, out of the anger trance, watching it from the outside, widening context. So develop, this, uh, develop their self-doubt as a tool. In what way may I have missed something? Okay, we want a little self-doubt here. I'm reminded of a friend who once spoke angrily to a neighbor who never seemed to reply to her attempts at polite conversation. And in the end, her anger reached boiling point. Uh, but it evaporated when she discovered 
that this neighbour was in fact completely deaf. So suddenly her context widened. Because anger happens so fast and makes us, makes us uh, forget all these tips, it's a good idea to help our clients rehearse replacing anger with calm ahead of time so that the response to their triggers is automatically no longer there. So they don't have to try not to be angry, they just automatically respond differently. Have your clients breathe deeply and remember it's the extended out breath that triggers the relaxation response while imagining seeing themselves dealing calmly with life's frustrations. Tip four, don't get angry for pity's sake. So anger makes us see other people as objects to be acted upon rather than human beings to be interacted with. When you're very angry, people lose their humanity and they become things to act upon. We become angry with someone when we feel they are preventing us from getting what we want. Okay, and in that state, other people become mere obstacles to us. And because we objectify other people when we become enraged, we're more likely to be violent because, after all, objects can be removed or pushed around or replaced or punched or run, run over in a car. So we can help build our clients in the moment empathy by teaching them to visualize the people who make them angry as human beings with needs, fears and problems, as well as remembering that one time they were tiny babies. Angry people need to see the objects of their ire as living, breathing human beings, as people. But we also need to consider why our clients might, might be getting angry. So tip number five, help them deal with real life frustrations. So it's important to ask um, clients and find out how and to what extent each angry client's primal needs are being met in their life on an ongoing basis. Just as the experience of thirst is a signal that our need for hydration hasn't been met, fear, depression and for some anger can all be signals that other needs remain unfulfilled, emotional needs. So take a good look at your client's life. We all have needs, needs for sufficient sleep, food, attention from other people, meaning, status, stimulation and self-esteem and so forth. How well are these needs being met in your client's life day to day? Is your client skipping meals uh, but binging on sugar? Graham certainly was. Are they getting enough good quality sleep? Graham wasn't. Are they satisfied in their work and in their social life? Not getting needs met isn't an excuse for getting angry, but it does make it more likely. It is an explanation. One of the first things I'll ask a client is, how is your sleep? Sometimes we sort out sleep and we sort out anger. Okay, it can be that simple. Graham found that as he became less angry, he started to sleep better, stopped drinking too much, and found it easier to socialize again. Okay, so meeting these needs better, in turn, meant he was less likely to get angry. But getting less angry also helped him meet these needs better. So in our last session, 
Graham Tolby, it felt like heaven to be able to chill out when he used to overheat. Okay, so those were his metaphors. And I thought it was funny that he used the word heaven because in our very first session, as he was resting in deep relaxation, I told him this story. Okay, and once in ancient Japan, there was a young samurai warrior. And his mastery of the sword was strong, but his mastery of himself was weak. He happened one morning to come into the presence of a wise old man who was reputedly an even better swordsman than the young upstart, but who didn't feel the need to impress others. If you're so wise, demanded the younger man, then explain to me the meaning of hell and heaven. And the old man turned on the young samurai. Why should I even speak to one as bloated on self-importance, so mired in self-opinion, so stuffed full of conceit as you? Be gone, weak man. Now no one had ever dared speak to the young samurai like that before. And infuriated beyond measure, absolutely enraged, hands shaking with anger, he drew his sword and went as if to separate the ancient sage's head from his body. But at that point, the older one turned calmly and said, in answer to your question, that, my child, is hell. And the warrior was amazed and humbled that the older man should endanger his own life to illustrate a point and quickly regained control over himself again. And seeing the hot-headed youth calm down, the old man gently pointed out, and that, my son, is heaven. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Thank you.